Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you as the source of all truth, all hope, all light. Please reveal your truth to us as we study your word together. Give us hope for now and the future. Let your light shine in us and from us. Please make us more like Jesus. Amen. As we've already seen in the first chapter of 1 Timothy, Paul has dealt with the problematic issue of false doctrine. People have been teaching things that sound true, but when you look closely, they're clever lies designed to lead us away from God. This problem of lies that sound like truth is absolutely rampant today in the world and, I'm ashamed to say, also in the church. Fake news. God wants you rich. Everyone is saved in the end. We can do anything that Jesus did if we only believe hard enough. All lies. Paul won't tolerate this, so he urges Timothy to teach the truth, the unadulterated gospel, and to deal firmly with false teachers. Fight for the faith. Turn blasphemers out of the church while still dealing with brothers and sisters lovingly. And from these stern warnings in chapter 1, we step into chapter 2, where Paul begins to offer guidance on how to live our faith. We're looking today at the first seven verses, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. They go like this. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. It's astonishing how much Paul manages to pack into seven verses. I count 11 big topics, but you might find more. Here are the 11 that I can see. Instruction on prayer, the nature of human authority, the character of our lives, our duty to God, God's attitude towards us, monotheism, that there's one God, the doctrine of reconciliation, the doctrine of atonement, divine timing, Paul's commission, and I'm running out of fingers, 11, the gospel mission. Now, this is probably because I'm not a particularly accomplished preacher, but I can't do justice to 11 topics in 30 minutes. So I'm going to pick out the two that I believe are particularly important to focus on today. And that's not to deny the importance of the other points, far from it. Simply that I will have to ask you to study the others on your own time. Study the others? What do you mean, Rob? 
That sounds like work. Yes, it does, doesn't it? How seriously do we take our faith? The Bible is the richest source of knowledge and wisdom and spiritual insight available to us. Do you want to know how to live? Read your Bible. Do you want to understand salvation? Read your Bible. Do you ever despair? Read your Bible. Do you want people to be saved from God's fearsome judgment? Read your Bible and learn the importance of our mission. Does poverty, sickness, suffering, war, abuse, neglect bother you? Read your Bible and understand God's answer to all this. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm chapter 1 verses 1 to 2 Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. Very well known, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realise what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. The Bible's a message from the creator of the universe revealing his purposes for the world and his expectations of us, his children. So we ignore it at our peril. And yes, read the passage and put in the work. It's about the best possible use of our time. Let's pick up the first theme, that of prayer. I think this is the main thrust of these seven verses, the other 10 themes I identified support this one. And the New Living Translation gives us this for the first verse. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. The English Standard Version says this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. The 2015 version of the Amplified has this. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, specific requests, prayers, intercessions, for prayers for others and thanksgivings be offered on behalf of all people. So we have ask for help, make specific requests, intercede, give thanks and broadly Pray. I don't think Paul intends this as a limited list. Here are the precise ways to pray or an exhaustive list. Here are all possible ways to pray. Rather, Paul's telling us to engage 
in all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. You know, when I was writing this sermon, I was on a bit of a roll up to this point. I was doing okay. And then I read what I'd just written. Engage in all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. Oh dear. I might as well hand in my preacher's badge right now. There's no point in me pretending to myself or to you that I'm even slightly good at this. The Pharisee in me, the hypocrite, says, Hey Rob, while you're preparing, quickly pray all those different types of prayer for a bunch of different people. And that way you can make like you do this. How can I preach this sermon? I'm rubbish at prayer. Genuinely, properly rubbish. Half the time it doesn't even occur to me to pray. I've become so used to just living life. Where's Radical Rob? Where's he gone? Have I become Boring Bob? Don't ever call me that, by the way. Nearly 30 years ago, I was at university. 30 years. Goodness. 30 years ago, I had faith about the weather. Now, please listen really carefully. When I talk about faith, I'm not meaning that if I believed hard enough, I got what I wanted. No, faith is a dynamic, living relational thing. What I mean by faith is that my relationship with God was good. It was all right. I had a sense of what he wanted and I tried to pray in accordance with that. And I'd ask him for things in line with what I felt I knew of him. And for some reason, this particularly related to the weather. This weather thing, I'd pray for the weather to change and it would change. If some people I knew were getting married at some point in the future, I'd pray for the weather to be beautiful for the day of their wedding. I'd pre-book it. And it would be. And this happened time and time again. I'd be in town doing my shopping. The clouds would start to gather and it would start chucking it down. And I'd ask God for it to stop so I could walk the three miles back to my room in the dry. And it would stop. And it would stay stopped until I was a couple of paces away from my building when it would start to rain again. Just enough for me to get a tiny bit wet and for God to remind me who was in charge around here. I lost count of how often this happened throughout my three years at university and a little beyond that. I was known for it. <clears throat> People would ask for me to pray for weather for them. And in the 20 plus years after that, it went away. Why do you suppose that was? Well, I could finally afford an umbrella and had access to a washing machine and a car and shower gel. I stopped praying about the weather because I didn't need to. 
And that, right there, is my problem. Boring, self-sufficient Bob doesn't pray because he's too comfortable. And then he has kids and massive, traumatic medical episodes. Both children nearly die multiple times over and life from then on is one huge struggle. Guess who needs to pray again? But even then, see how easy it is for me to imply that I'm back to praying as much as I should. Hypocrite! I don't. Now, this probably doesn't help you at all, but perhaps at least if you struggle with this too, you can see we're all in the same boat. Unless you find prayer easy. And I do hear of the odd, rare person who does. As is so often the case when preparing a sermon, I see that I am in no position to talk down to anyone about this. Pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. This is your duty. This is my duty. Nobody gets a free pass. But thank our Heavenly Father that our salvation doesn't depend on getting this right. Because then, frankly, I'd be doomed. And I'm not too sure about you. Pray for all kinds of people. Pray for rulers and all those in authority. What? Even that politician that I think's a complete moppet? Yes, especially that politician. They need God's help. They need Jesus. If we don't pray for them, who's gonna? You know, when Paul specifically mentions praying for kings and all who are in authority, this would have included the Roman emperor, Nero. Nero was appalling. He tortured and murdered whomever he wanted on a whim. Paul says, pray for him and the rest. But what should I pray for them? Well, perhaps pray that they have a dramatic encounter with the living Saviour. When a world leader turns to Christ or becomes sympathetic to the gospel, what a blessing that can bring. And pray that God will use them, whether they like it or not. In the story of Exodus, you know, when the plagues came and the Israelites escaped from Egypt, Pharaoh was the guy in charge. And God used him. How? God kept hardening his heart so that he wouldn't let the Israelites go. God used Pharaoh to resist his own purposes. That sounds a bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? But what happened in the end? The Israelites experienced a dramatic escape and God had his way. The glory went to God, even when a godless, murderous, xenophobic tyrant was in power. Now this should tell us that God is still God. Nothing happening today is unforeseen or too much for him to handle. And so we need to do our humble bit and pray, just like he's told us to.
for people we don't even know or like. I'm still guilty, by the way. Guilty, but forgiven. How are we going to do this then? Just build it into your life. Oh man, do you have to say that, Rob? Yes, yes I do. It's in this passage, I have no choice. Paul urges his readers to pray. But I don't wanna! Tough bananas. Okay, one sec. If I were listening to this sermon, given what you know about me by now, what do you think I'd do? That's right. Probably nothing. Oh, what a rubbish Christian. God's got me in a tight spot here. Can you see? I hate hypocrisy. I can't stand two-facedness. So what's God got me doing? Praying a sermon about prayer that forces me, if I'm to retain a single shred of dignity, to start praying properly. Ah! Okay, help me out here. If I've got to do it, will you too? Will you join me in building more prayer into your life? Will you come to the church's prayer meetings? I mean, it's on Zoom these days. You don't even need to leave the house. And when we can, it will also happen in the church building. So when that happens, you can join others physically, socially distanced for now, if you prefer. What sort of excuse does that leave us with? Oh, but country files on at seven o'clock. I've got one word for you. Catch up. Well, we're still on point one of 11. I'm an even worse preacher than I thought. Let's leap to point three, the character of our lives. 1 Timothy 2, verses 2 to 3. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God, our saviour. So uh, just one theme, but five bullet points. Peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified, pleasing to God. Five bullet points. Will this sermon ever end? What does Paul mean by peaceful? Back in his day, the Christians were persecuted, martyred, flogged, set alight, beaten, sent to the lions. None of that sounds very peaceful. What can he mean by peaceful? Well, as always, we use scripture to illuminate scripture. So let's look at something else Paul says about peace, where he clarifies this point. Romans 12:18, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. That's the NLT. Or in the ESV, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, as far as it depends on you. We do our bit to live in peace. We're not contentious with people. We're not looking for arguments, 
just for the sake of it. We're not stirring up trouble. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 20. This is Paul again. For I'm afraid that when I come, I won't like what I find and you won't like my response. I'm afraid that I will find quarrelling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorderly behaviour. These aren't peaceful attributes, are they? And James chapter 3 verses 13 to 18. If you are wise and understand God's way, prove it by living an honourable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favouritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Praying for those in authority can result in a peaceful environment, yes, but also an inner peace. If we're stressing about world events, coronavirus, racial tensions, one of the best things we can do is take those burdens to God. Pray about our role in these situations and pray for our spiritual and political leaders. Psalm 55 verse 22. Give your burdens to the Lord and he will take care of you. He will not permit the godly to slip and fall. Give your burdens to the Lord and he will take care of you. Peace, we hope, in our world and peace for certain in our hearts. The other aspect to this quiet and peaceful life is perhaps more obvious. We want peace in our world, don't we? Not the precarious peace that can exist between world powers, Russia and America say. No, the peace that only Christ can bring. In John 14, 27, Jesus said, I am leaving with you a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. The ESV version may sound more familiar. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Not as the world gives. Jesus brings real peace, reconciliation between God and sinners. That's the peace he brings. When all sinners are reconciled to God, truly reconciled, there can be no more war. We need that for our family, friends and neighbours. We need that for our allies and our enemies. And in John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. 
Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. What grace there is in the peace of Christ. Now at this point, you might be justified in saying to me, Rob, you're cherry picking scriptures. What about Matthew 10? Well, hold on, hold on. I'm getting there. That verse I've just read, John 16, 33. Have you noticed the verse that comes immediately before it? Let's read both verses together. John 16, 32 to 33, Jesus speaking. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when you will be scattered, each one going his own way, leaving me alone. Yes, I am not alone, because the Father is with me. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus talked about the disciples being scattered. That doesn't sound very peaceful, does it? And yet in the next verse, he says they will have peace. And even more problematic is that Matthew 10 passage. Matthew 10, 34 to 39. Jesus says, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Uh, hang on a minute. Peace, no peace. Peace, no peace. Well, look carefully and it all falls into place. In John 14 and 16, Jesus talks about giving his peace to his disciples. But in Matthew 10, Jesus talks about removing peace from the earth. And the reason for this is obvious when you look at another couple of passages. James 4 verse 4 says, You adulterers, don't you realise that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. And in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 verses 14 to 15, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? There's profound peace between God and those he's saved. But between God and the kingdom of darkness, there is war. 
We know that Jesus talked a lot about love and we like to preach about that. It makes us feel good. But make no mistake, God has not stopped hating sin. Psalm 5 puts it pretty strongly. Psalm 5 verses 4 to 6. O God, you take no pleasure in wickedness. You cannot tolerate the sins of the wicked. Therefore, the proud may not stand in your presence, for you hate all who do evil. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord detests murderers and deceivers. Strong words, right? You hate all who do evil. The Lord detests murderers and deceivers. So God is bringing division into the world then? No, 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 no. We did it. We brought division into the world. As sure as if we ate that apple in the Garden of Eden or pomegranate or whatever it was, we did it. We nailed the Son of God to the cross because we are selfish and violent and jealous and petty and thieves and murderers and adulterers. That is why Jesus brings the sword to the earth. And yet to all who believe in his name, he brings peace. Pray for peace in this world, true peace, the reconciliation of God with humans, global repentance from sin. Why would we not pray that? Because we think it can't happen? Oh, brothers and sisters, did Jesus die in vain? He did not. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives. And those lives are also to be marked by godliness and dignity. And this will need to be my final point. And yes, if you're counting, that will mean I have managed to cover a mighty two topics out of 11. Godly and dignified. Would you say that you are godly and dignified? Don't answer that. Back in the last chapter in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5, Paul said, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience and genuine faith. Pure hearts, clear consciences, genuine faith, honesty, sincerity. Leviticus 11.44a, God says, For I am the Lord your God. You must consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am holy. Be holy, because I am holy. Living lives characterised by godliness and dignity. But what about King David, who danced with all his might? Do you know the story? God's chosen king of Israel, David, was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back in Jerusalem and he partied hard. Not drugs, not wine, not girls. He was celebrating his Lord, his God. And as, his, as he danced, his ungodly wife looked on him in disgust. The story is in 2 Samuel 6, and it says in verse 16, she was filled with contempt for him, and she challenged him about his behaviour. 
David replied, verse 22, Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. Or in other translations, I will become even more undignified than this. So how does that square with living a godly, dignified life? Well, it's all in the context. There is nothing that should get in the way of our worship of God. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, we see one of the most important commandments that stands today. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your strength. Loving God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, that's effort, that's complete devotion. And our worship can and should reflect this effort. Maybe we can be a bit less British in our worship. King David humbled himself before his God and set the example for the entire kingdom to do the same. That is right and proper and godly. The context that Paul's speaking to when he says our lives are to be marked by dignity, that's about our witness and the way we live our lives. We aren't to bring the gospel into disrepute. People are looking for any excuse to claim that the gospel is irrelevant. And if we are unnecessarily cantankerous, offensive, selfish, conceited, arrogant and dishonourable, we're doing the gospel a great disservice. We are people who are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, and that's what the world should see, whether they like the way he looks or not. Pray at all times for all people. Promote peace inside and out. Live to please God. Father, we want these, these words that are in, in the Bible that you've given to us to settle and live in our hearts. Lord God, please anoint these words if they've fallen on the ears of all people hearing, so that what's of you will remain and that what's not of you will drift away. And Lord, I ask that you challenge us and inspire us and lead us and guide us in our prayer and help us to be faithful and obedient in this, for the sake of your glory and for your kingdom. Amen. A brief postscript. I haven't covered verse 4, which says that God wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. This verse is sometimes used to argue that all people will be saved in the end. We don't have time to look at this closely and flesh it out, and I didn't feel that the Holy Spirit was leading me to address that matter at this time. Suffice it to say, that's not what the verse means. The destiny of unrepentant sinners is eternal punishment, and the Bible teaches that abundantly clearly in multiple places. So we need to obey God and get praying. I need to, you need to. Let's do it.
May God bless you.